My name's Sean Costello and welcome to the first edition of Capital Yarns podcast for 2019. Yes, I know it's been a while uh, since the last podcast back in December last year, 2018, but um, I've been doing a range of interesting things, most particularly interviewing the amazing Melina Marquetta at Muse, which you'll hear in a moment. Usually on this podcast, you'd hear me uh, bring to life, with the help of friends and family, a short story inspired by you, inspired by three items nominated by someone via email or in person or over social media for me to weave into a story set in Canberra. But a, a Canberra story of a different kind this week. It was such a pleasure to interview Melina. You'll pick up early in the Q&A session that we had together that I was trying very hard, not to mention that book, that book being Looking for Ali Brandy. Uh, 27 years ago, it was released and it and it has just become a seminal text in Australian literature, uh, young adult literature, adult literature, no matter what your age, uh, I'm, I'm sure you've heard of it, hopefully you've read it or seen the movie, which Melina also wrote the screenplay for, but I was trying, as you'll hear, to, to explore different parts uh, of Melina's writing, the craft of it, what inspires her, and most particularly, her latest book, The Place in Dalhousie, a adult book also set in the suburbs of Sydney, uh, much like Looking for Ali Brandy and Saving Francesca and other books, but with some of her characters a bit more grown up. And so now we see them as adults and dealing with some different issues, most particularly coming home. It, Melina is such, I'm sure you'll hear, such a warm and generous speaker. She was so honest about the art of writing, so humble about the incredible Australian writer that she is. It was such a pleasure to interview her. The first voice you'll hear is Nikki Anderson, who looks after events at Muse. I'm very grateful to Muse for inviting me uh, along to do this Q&A session with Melina. Please be a little bit patient with the audio. It was a live event, so you'll hear a little bit of background noise uh, and some of the questions toward the end are a little bit difficult to hear. I apologise for that, but I hope you'll enjoy it as much as I did. Melina Marquetta and The Place on Dalhousie. Welcome everyone. Thank you for getting here on time. I know it's hard on a work day to um, get here at 5.30. So excited to have a very full house for Malia Marquetta and with our lovely interlocutor, Sean. Um, my name is Nick Anderson. I organise the events here at News. And I'd like to acknowledge that we're meeting on Indigenous land to pay my respects to the Elders past, present and emerging. And to acknowledge that the Indigenous peoples of Australia obviously are our original storytellers. So we are just very privileged to continue that storytelling tradition here in our beautiful country. Now, Malia Marketa does not need a heap of um, introduction. I know you're all big fans. Um, but this new book, I know, will not disappoint. I started it last night and I am up to there. So that just tells you, no spoilers, thanks. And, um, well, that's half my question. <laughs> yeah, that's all good. So that is how gripping it is. And it's got all the hallmarks, well, for me at least, of a, of a, of a true Marquetta story with the, the zingers and the great one-liners and the winning characters, both male and female, and lots of emotion, the crying, laughing kind of stuff and, and family. So I think we're going to have a fabulous conversation. It's a usual kind of format of about 40 minutes of conversation and then over to you for some questions. And um, I'll ask you just to welcome Melina and Sean. 
Thank you, Melina. Welcome. Thank you. Um, I read that you're asked about one particular book, I think for a decade straight, you've got a question a week on average. No, 11 years. 11 years, more than that. <laughs> so the, uh, the challenge for me tonight is not to name the title of that book, but I need your help and audience with that. If you get a sense that I that I might be slipping, that I'm going to name that book, or I actually do it, I need you to interject, I need you to shout something out to stop me. And I think the most appropriate thing to shout out, and works on many levels, is tomatoes. Tomatoes for me to stop me. Melina, I also wanted to say you're sort of a home of sorts. Jellico Road, uh, one of your previous books, is not far from here, Sydney. Yes, so I wanted to welcome you home. You know, to back to your region. Um, I know people who won't go past Yas because of that novel. <laughs> <laughs> There's a Yas reference in it that's quite important. Okay, well, I'm sure no one here would avoid Yas. I could say something nasty about Yas. Um, and I, and uh, as Nikki alluded to, there will be a chance for you guys to ask some questions first, but I'm very lucky I get to go first with my questions. So, I mean, I just want to start by saying that it's, it's incredible when you look around this bookstore just how many different sections your book sitting. Fantasy, crime, general fiction, adult, young adult fiction, an incredible breadth of work there. I think you've spoken in the past about wanting to expand your writing to sort of prove to yourself and others you could do that. But with this latest book, The Place on Dalhousie, you've sort of returned home in some ways, back to the inner west of Sydney. I think it's, um, I, I, and it's, it's interesting because it's not that you want to move away, but when you wrote, I'm going to say it, looking at Bella Brandy, that's good. When you've written Ella Brandy and Francesca, I, I think I just had to prove that I could write more than about Italian girls in the suburbs. Um, and I'm, I'll be negative here, it's not because I don't want to, it's because you do get typecast. And I felt that when Jellico came out because it was almost you know, this, what is she doing? You know, it was just, she can't do this. Um, so I've always wanted to go back to that world. And I do in my head, um, probably not as much Ella Grundy, but Francesca, The Piper Sun and Dalhousie, completely different genres because Francesca is definitely a YA novel. And I don't think um, Dalhousie is at all, but it's debatable where The Piper Sun sits. But for, for me, I call them like Inner West Trilogy because they are, they are, um, they're companion novels to each other and they revolve around a world very close to where I live. So um, I have a very soft spot for them and I'm glad that I've been able to go back to them without any apologies and without any, I don't care what people think about stereotyping me, I think I've proven myself. I think you have, absolutely. Yeah. I'm sure this audience would, would agree. Um, and without spoiling the end of the book for Nikki, I do want to explore some of those characters because obviously much sure. loved for you. But just on that breadth of work, the body of work that you've done, it seems like a, a common theme across all of those books is the interactions of people from different cultures and both the positive and negative interactions. Yeah. It seems across that, that time period of your books, uh, in terms of mm -hmm. Australia's views, the Australian community views to multiculturalism, to different cultures has waxed and waned. We've gone through periods of positiveness and negativeness. I just wonder, where do you think we are now and how, what impact does that make when you sit down to write about these characters? Um, I was asked how Josie would feel about you know, where we are now. And I have to be honest, I think she'd be disappointed. Um, I think we have made progress, but I don't think we've made enough progress. And, and I hate this idea that progress is 
straight out a fantastic thing. I, I'm actually shocked at how little progress we've made. Um, and I think what I find probably the most devastating at times, and I don't experience it as much as I did a couple of years ago, but what devastates me is that sometimes you'll hear racism coming from Italians, um, you know, maybe about refugees or, you know, anyone else. And I think, have you forgotten? Um, because as much as Italians have, you know, found such an amazing place in this country and, um, you know, have had pretty much a positive experience, it wasn't always like that. My grandfather was interned during World War II, um, although he was a British um, subject. Um, so I just, I, I get disappointed that people forget um, that next culture. Um, there always has to be someone, you know, that's at the, you know, bottom, um, and and that's disappointing. But I do, I do believe some progress has been made, but probably not enough. And I, I feel that a lot more when I look at the media, when I look at our politicians, when I look at a lot of Australia that is shown to the world. I still think it's very much a monoculture, and it does not reflect. Um, well, it doesn't reflect my area. It doesn't reflect. Um, the inner west um, I've written about. So for me it's very important that I am writing about a world that makes sense to me um, because I want to see us on, you know, in the pages of a book. And, and interesting, in this, in this book you do have characters from many different cultures, so is that, is that sort of desire for those uh, European migrants to welcome more recent arrivals part of what motivates you to write about this? To, to a certain degree, um, and there's another part and it's always hard because I, I just never want to kind of get this idea that there's this news and there's this, you know, this thing that comes to me. But it has to feel right that that character is from a particular culture. Um, and so it's always a relief that they are. I'm not saying that I wouldn't force it if I had to. But for me, and, you know, we are talking about kids before, I think of my daughter goes to a school, it's very Italian, um, but when I think of her um, friendship group, it's, you know, I, I can't get over just how diverse it is. And it's, it's no longer Italians marrying Italians, it's Italians marrying, you know, people from the Islands, or it's a Greek marrying a Canadian, or it's a, you know, Greek marrying a, um, a, a Dutch person. So, um, and I was telling a friend the other day that I, what disappoints me about my daughter's school is it's not diverse enough. And she said, well, from the northern beaches and trust me that's diverse but I still feel as if I get excited when I do see different people in our area because I'm bored by a monoculture and I don't want my child to be um, brought up in, in that type of environment because I just think it's the way that we do see the world in, in a bigger picture. Another theme of this book and a, a theme that you've explored in some others as well is the concept of home and and, and um, characters striving to come home, the place in Belfast refers to a, a home to a number of characters. But they all seem to see home as kind of something a little different. It means something different to each of them. It does, and I, I think of someone like myself, um, I don't know if you felt this way, because you know you were also brought up a bit different to me. But you know, I spent a lot of my life wanting to run away from being that Italian girl. Um, and I, I'm actually shocked that I live where I live. And it, I have to say, had to do with having a child um, and realising I want to raise her in the same area um, that I grew up. I want her five minutes away from my mum, as opposed to ten minutes, by the way. <laughs> um, but I just, I wanted us all close together because I just, that's what I had. Um, 
So, you know, it does shock me. My mother boasts that we've, you know, we get closer and closer. It's almost as if she's dying for us to move in. She'll pick us up, but she's dying for us to move in. So she'll say, see, I told you. But um, you do spend a lot of your time running away. And then that's why I don't think I've ever had such a strong sense of where I belong as I do now. And I know that my daughter feels the same way. Um, so I feel as if I had to see everything out there to be able to come home. And um, home to me is all about community. And we are very fortunate that we belong to a community, but it doesn't happen by chance. I search for it. Um, I, I say quite often, my daughter came to me in different circumstances. She was my foster child first. She came to me when she was two, and we'd been together for five years. And it was really important that I provided her with community and that's why I moved and that's why I've done a lot of things in my life with her and I can see the benefits of it because I see a very happy child who has a strong sense of where she belongs because of all those different people. You talk about not wanting to be the stereotypical Italian girl. Yeah. There are two Italian female characters in this book, Rosie and Frankie. Mm. Um, Frankie may be known to us from previous works, but they have very different uh, family backgrounds. Yes. Was that sort of trying to attack that Italian stereotype? Yes, way? yes, because um, you know Frankie's family is probably a bit like mine, where their migration would have happened you know pre and post war, whereas um, Rosie's um, family's migration happened in the nineties. And I, I don't know whether it's the same in, in um, Canberra, but I'm seeing a lot of young Italians come to Sydney to work because of the economic situation in Italy. And, um, and those who have come out, even those who aren't so young, um, I remember a particular family who my mum kind of looked after in certain ways a couple of years ago. It's just the three of them. It was just the three of them. So gone were the days that people came out en masse now they're coming out, there's only a few of them. And I always think that, much like Rosie, if something happens to your parents, you are pretty much left alone. And if you you know, end up having a child and you're not able to look for that child, that child could end up in care. So it's a different migration periods really, I think, determine um, the lives that some of these um, migrants are having. And unlike, unlike you, Rosie doesn't have the ability to move closer to her. To no, her no. Her grandmother lives in, in, in Sicily, you know, and there's so much poverty over there. It's, it's I mean, we we um, celebrate Italy and we think it's amazing, but, you know, when I was doing my research, I'm, my family's Sicilian, I just couldn't believe the unemployment rate, you know, in, in Sicily and how many people, I think more than 60% were living um, under the poverty line. So, you know, it, it's, it's kind of dispelling that myth once again, that Italian families are all about, you know, getting together, enjoying themselves. And also that idea that not all Italian families are like that. My family has worked really, really hard. Forget work-wise and where we've got, but as a family unit, we are, we're constantly, you know, we're, we've got very big personalities. We could have had so many fallings out, but we work really hard at, at holding um, it together and it works for us, but it's never easy. And I just don't ever want people to take, you know, think, oh, they're Italians, they're close-knit. That's not the case at all. In fact, perhaps what you share is, is that you want to prioritise family yes. and, and making it work. Exactly. And I think that that's what Frankie's family is about. Um, and, you know, it's also about taking care of other people. And, uh, you know, Frankie, as much as she doesn't have a big role, but she still has an important role in this, she is really um, Jimmy's family um, because... 
he has really learned what it means to be part of family, observing both Frankie's family and especially Tom Mackey's. But that doesn't mean he's ever really been part of one because he's always kind of run, he's always kind of floated around. So he really has to learn what it means to be part of someone's family and it can't be nicking off when, you know, when there's trouble. So yes, you've talked about the fact this is the third in that, in that trilogy in Saving Francesca. We, we got to know Frankie in the Piper's son, Tom. What brings you back to these, these characters again for this third book? Now as much older adults exploring different parts of their lives. You know, I can't say it's because everyone asked me about um, Jimmy, because everyone did. I was asked constantly, but you know, his absence in the Piper's son was meant to be felt. Uh, I did not know where he was, and if I didn't know where a character was, I was not going to force him into this story. And that's what happened with the Piper's son. And of course, that absence is felt almost on every page. Um, and so I had to make sure that I knew where he was, and I was not going to just write a book because people wanted me to write. And it's, it's interesting because it was Rosie writing or thinking of Rosie as a character. You know, she's, she is a very fractured character. And I thought they, were, they, they are meant to kind of collide into each other's lives. And same with Martha. Martha's my age or a bit, um, a bit younger now because she was my age when I started writing her. And so I just thought, I'm going to place these three characters. It's what I always do. I place them... You know, whether it's in a home, in a school, in a boarding, you know, school, whatever, you, you throw them all in together and you just sit back and watch the way they interact. And they are three people who have lost a lot in their life, but I think that they're really searching for something without realising it. And and um, that's where I felt, this is your story, you know, Jimmy, like it's okay. Step up to the plate. You've got to, you've got to tell me what your story is. Um, and it's very interesting that I started you know, hundreds of miles away in Queensland, that's where it begins, but it, it's it's sooner or later they're going to end up in Sydney. And that might be a nice time, we talked about perhaps an extract reading, um, which is a part of the book where we are learning a little bit about where Jimmy's been and, and him finally finding his way back to back to Sydney. Would you like to read this? It's just Psalm chapter 3, I think it's in the part of the book that Nikki's up to, so we're not ruining okay. <laughs> And it's a paragraph that doesn't really ruin anything. And it's, it's one of my favourites, I have to say. Um, it's a three-hander, this novel is. Um, so this is the first time we get into the point of view of Jimmy, or Jim at this point. He's home, and he knows he's home because they're here, and that's the way it is. Just a certainty that one of them will always be around and it feels like everything's going to be okay in a way that it hasn't since that phone call. And he's hugging the three of them because he's become the sort of person who goes straight for the clinch. Because once that hug came from Frankie Spinelli years ago, he knew his days of holding back were over. And everyone looks the same and different. And he has one of those epiphanies in front of the clocks outside Central on Elizabeth Street next to a guy selling the big issue. That regardless of where his car took him and what he didn't end up finding, he's part of this city too and he realises that they're all laughing and that he said it all out loud. Shut up, Jimmy. And then the girls link their arms with his. And Mackie takes Jimmy's duffel and he's so overwhelmed by them and the city and being home that he forgets why he's really here and just lets it all settle in that he's home. So um, that, that passage in particular, perhaps the book as a whole, remind me a little bit of your first book, Tear, or Fitting Into the Rock, in that 
much like um, Finnegan, um, Jimmy's fighting he's, as many barriers on his way without spoiling the book for anyone to yeah. get home. So that does seem to be a, a, a thing we like to explore. Characters that are, as you say, in this book start off in far north of Queensland but are fighting to get back home. Sure, and it's interesting that you bring up Finnegan because. Finnegan to me had all the themes of looking Carla Brundy. It was. Hold back your tomatoes. But um, that first book, the one that came out in 1993. <laughs> <laughs> but it did, it had all the themes of it, and it, you know, because it's about that, um, you know, growing up with people who fantasize or romanticize the motherland. Um, it's about. Um, the loss of language between generations. I, I had an amazing relationship with my grandfather, but he spoke Sicilian and I didn't, and I can't believe that we communicated, but I'm also sad about all the things that we did say to each other um, that we could have said to each other. So that theme comes into Finnegan. Um, and there's a, a lot of other ones. It, it's, it's about being an exile, being the child of a migrant, you know, in a land um, that doesn't really belong to you. And so for me, when I'm writing about these characters, there always is a, there's a tiny bit of a yearning. Um, I was always told that if I went to Italy, you know, I'd just get off the plane and I would know exactly where I belonged. Um, and I sort of believed it because people would tell me how they felt. And I was 19 years old, I went with my sister, and um, that didn't happen at all. Um, I was probably a tiny bit even more confused, which is great because I wrote that first book that came out in 1993 with the in it. But what I remember being in Italy was sitting with my great aunts and they told me, um, they were telling me stories, so this was back in the 80s, they were telling me about the day when my father's family left Sicily in the 1950s and they were still crying telling that story. And um, back then, of course, you didn't just you know, Skype someone or you know, it wasn't flying back and forth. Um, my maternal grandmother left Australia, sorry, left Italy in the 1930s and never saw her siblings ever again. And they died around the same time as her 60 years later. So it's just, it's that that I cannot understand. But what I have come to understand in this, this aspect, I don't think that Italy is my, um, part of my home, but those people were, my, my great aunts were home to me. And for me, it's always proven that, for me, it's people, and it's where those people end up. That's where the link is between me and them. It's funny, I had a similar experience returning to Italy in my, in my 20s, uh, family from around Naples, and the thing that struck me was, again, my grandfather, my nonno, hadn't been back since the 1950s, never went back. Mm. But meeting his younger brother, they had all exactly the same mannerisms, yes. speaking to him, and again, he didn't speak English, and I didn't speak Italian. But um, we were still able to communicate, and it was so much like speaking to my grandfather. Yes. And that just goes to your point that it's it's not the country or the land, it's the, it's the people. No, that, it's that not. It, it is the people, and it was the same with mine, because my grandfather, so my grandfather and my grandmother, they were married to my, so my grandfather's brother was married to my grandmother's sister. And when I saw them, it was just such a shock because they looked so much like my grandparents. And, um, and I just, look, I, I, I will never forget those conversations around the table. And that's, I have to say, one of the beauties of our lives and our lives with our parents, um, that there's so much dialogue around that table. Um, that's a tradition that 
Um, you know, we are telling each other to shut up because everyone's speaking at the same time. <laughs> and, and I see it now with, you know, we've got four children, you know, two of my nephews who are older and, you know, the two little ones. And I love the fact that they're part of all of that as well, that, that you know, if they grew up with what I grew up with and that they will notice the resemblance between my father and his brother. It's almost kind of like this confusion of, yeah, he looks so much like Nonno and it's like, no, but that's you and the whole thing. So it's people in the end, you know, that, that's, that's where home is in the end, family and friends. So. Which is really what comes out. Yeah, which is what this book is about because it's not about the big, um, you know, Spinelli family or, um, you know, the Ella Grundy family or anyone. It's about who people gather around them. Some are linked by blood and, and others aren't. But they are definitely a community, and, and that's something that I've very much experienced in my life. Um, I've read in the past you've described your writing style perhaps more as a gardener than an architect. You might take a bit of a winding path to, to finish a book. Is that still, you know, many, many books on, and with this one in particular, is that still the writing style that works? I like best? that term, because I, I, I used to use the term settler and pioneer. <laughs> um, I'm the pioneer, I just race. I race through and then I start again, race so, through, start so again. Searching for home. Um, yeah, it's just kind of, um, I'm in awe of people who won't go to the next um, chapter until they get that chapter right. Um, but that's how I do first draft. It's, it is all over the place. If I feel that I don't know what's happening, this happened in Saving Francesca, I think it's because I was probably suffering a bit of depression myself at the time. I remember the first draft was so much about what was going on at school and, you know, and I remember people saying, you've got to get into that house. And I think, well, I don't want to, in my head, I thought I don't want to get into that house because there's someone who's depressed behind a closed door and I couldn't get into that house really properly until probably second or third draft. Um, so I'm so used to first draft being all over the place, but the relief um, of getting first draft out um, is almost, not quite, but almost the same wonderful feeling of seeing a book in a bookstore because I just know there's a book out there. Like as soon as I've finished first draft, I know not, I don't think for one moment that my um, publisher is going to publish it because they won't. It has to be pretty good. Um, so I know that if I've got first draft that I can go back to it and back to it and back to it and get it to that level that I want it to. And I was saying yesterday, that you know, I I find the magic in those rewrites and the rewrites. I don't find them in the first draft. So those links that you find in my work, or that wow, that moment of oh my god, there are the connections. That that doesn't happen first draft. I have to really get to know this world over time for that to happen. You said earlier you alluded to the fact that perhaps this is an adult book, whereas the earlier books in the trilogy were for young adults. Do you have a particular audience in mind for that first draft or those subsequent drafts about who, who is the person you're Not at all. Not even with my first novel. I, I didn't know that there were different genres in a way. Um, and, you know, I always think it's funny that with, um, with Alibundi, tomatoes, um, <laughs> but with that, it came out, I just sent it to anyone. I never think of audience, that's probably the answer to that. And I don't think of genre either. Um, which is a bit of an issue when you're writing a crime novel in a fantasy novel. But, um, but I, I remember that first novel, I just sent it, and I found out ages later that it had ended up in the adult division, and they read it and said to the you know, young adult division, I think you might be interested in this. Then it came out years later, 
and um, everyone kept on saying, you know, this is an adult novel as well. And um, they had the same cover, but a different design, and they had an adult novel. And I remember people used to say to me, you know, I almost didn't um, find your novel because I don't go down to the children's um, or the YA area. And I used to think to myself, good, because you've just been charged $3 more.
Um, you know, there's there's a funny scene, you know, between two of the characters who knew each other in a way back at school, and you know, he asked her to dance. He doesn't remember asking her to dance, but of course, this is a stereotype. Being female, you remember everything about that moment. <laughs> um, and he spends the whole book trying to guess what the song was. So it was just so much fun going back to those, um, you know, those seventies and eighties songs. And also what he believed he was listening to. He was not that cool, you know. So it was just fun doing that. So sometimes it was about the, the um, you know, what they were listening to. And other times I cheated by a couple of months, like another one of the Lumineer songs, um, which is the most well-known. I think that came out later that year or earlier the next year. And I don't mention what it is in the novel but you know by you know what he's talking about that it's a particular song but even game of thrones there's a mention of game of thrones and i figured that when they have this conversation and it's tara and um, tom Mackey, you know telling jimmy about the fact that they don't have um cable they don't have foxtel so they've had to watch game of thrones at her mother's place and, and father's place and they've had to sit through the sex scenes with her parents um, but I realised that in March of that particular year, it hadn't come out yet, it came out in June. So I'm hoping there's not one of those people who don't have a life. <laughs> <laughs> I, I figured it out, I just don't care. You, know? <laughs> you can do it if it's a couple of months off, but you can't do it if it's a couple of years off. So it, it's about that, and also you don't want to date a novel. Um, going back to that first novel, um, I remember being told, take this out, take that out. No one will know who they are in, you know, in 10 years. And you two, Madonna, I have to say, I pretty much predicted that these people were going to be around. So. Is it true that music producers are paying you to come oh, and I could predict it. I could tell you what's going to be really big, you know, 25 years. Um, but, you, but you have to make sure that you're not dating a book because, you know, there, there are certain things that might make you cringe. So that's why I think a lot of writers write about the past music or um, independent, you know, music that a lot of people haven't really heard about. So based on that answer, I can forgive you for the lack of Buffy the Vampire Slayer references. <laughs> Without encouraging crime at all, uh, one of your previous books that I can't name has been dubbed the most stolen library book ever. Are you hoping the place of the Hassie might take that title and become uh, the most stolen library book? I don't know, but... Um, I used to think that that was just a line that they made up to promote the, um, the film. Um, but then I actually got my hair cut by a hairdresser who once told me that she stole the book from the library. So <laughs> I've got proof that that is actually true. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a, I, I, I love that sort of theft. I think that there's a special place for people who steal books because I just think how can happen there I, I mean that's terrible to say <laughs> <laughs> but, um, um, yeah. but I just think you know it's just there's something lovely about the fact that um, you know someone has stolen your book I, I, I love it um, I presume they stole it from libraries anyway not bookstores <laughs> not bookstores but um, yeah it's, it's there's a lot of you know I, I will never get I, I I don't get sick of talking about it. Um, it's just I want to talk about other things. I've written nine books, you know, ever since. But it's just amazing, you know, when you speak to especially a young person, not someone who's grown up with your work, but, you know, you speak to a 14-year-old and they tell you how much Alabrundi means to them. And I think there's no social networking in it. There's no, 
it was written 27 years ago and I just think it's not even about the diversity, it's just about people, kids want to connect and that's another reason why you don't date books. You don't have to give kids what you think they want. You'd be surprised about what they want. And they, like the Francesca readers, they're in love with that group of friends. Um, you know, people have said, and they sound like kind of cliches and, you know, but I just love the fact that people have said to me, you know, we wanted to be the friendship group in that novel and we worked at it. And um, other people have told me that, they met someone, um, you know, a friend online talking about my work and I just think it's just that's the part that blows me away rather than, you know, how well it's selling. So, yeah, I'd love people to be stealing this book. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I just I love the fact that they're talking about it. That's probably um, my big thing is I just wanted to get into the hands of, of readers because... I do, I mean, like everyone, I just feel as if it's got something to offer. You know, in this day and age where we get a bit jaded about everything, and I just think it's it's about the little things in life, but um, they feel really big when you're going through it. I know this audience is dying to ask you a question, so final one for me, it's just on that point. You've talked about how many people have been touched by your work, not just that first book, those, those nine others as well. Is there any book or that that's touched you in that way that, that has had that significant impact on your life? Oh, I think that there's always a book. Um, and if I had to think of one, you know, from my childhood, I always think Anne Green Gables. Um, I, I remember distinctly reading that book and it sounds dramatic, but it, it did change my life. I, I, I always feel as if there's a moment, an Anne Green Gables moment in, in my work, you know, where someone gets hit over the head with a slate like Anne hit Gilbert over the head. But I just remember feeling, you know, I've said this so often, I read so many books. I loved reading. My, if, if anyone had to say, where does your love of writing come from, it comes from reading. And I was a very reluctant reader and I, I, I was a bit troubled reader. And my mother, I just always appreciate the fact that my mother did not give up on me and look at where it's, it's got us. Um, but. I just always remember reading books where I just, um, I didn't find myself in those books. And I suppose in a strange way with, with Anne, she was an outsider to a certain degree. Um, but once again, she walks into this beautiful community and she's constantly, you know, making mistakes. Um, and then there's this trilogy that I adore. Um, the, um, it's called the Queen's Thief um, series, but it's the Atolia novels that, you know, I was going, you're always going through tough times, and I was going through a tough time because of my daughter's adoption last year and the whole thing. And I found myself, you know, just dying to go to bed at night just to read those books. Um, and I just realised how much solace um, a book can bring you. And I felt that. I felt that, you know, I won't say the only thing that got me through, but, you know, trying to deal with not sleeping at night and the whole thing. I just remember the relief of just going back into that world. It's like coming home. Um, yeah, and it was. And I just, um, I'm just so grateful for those books and I'm grateful that I can provide that, you know, to a certain degree for some people. Thank you so much. I feel like this audience probably has many better questions to ask you. Does anyone want to start us off? Everyone's always so shy. At the it only takes one of them. <laughs> we're, we're the ones sitting out here, so. Harry. Thank you. So, um, in your book, Glorious the Exiles, and also in your book, uh, Tell the Truth, something that I really liked about your books is that you had 
two male characters that really sort of had a lot of personal issues and things that weren't very, I guess, morally sound. And one thing that I've always liked about your writing is that uh, you find redemption for the characters, like your characters aren't sort of branded as either completely good or completely bad, but they're good. And, and I was just wondering, um, I haven't had a chance to read this book yet, but if you sort of think that redemption again is another thing. I think so to a certain degree, um, you know, because there's, I think, Rosie, and not, not quite in that way, but they're very flawed characters. Um, and, I mean, it was hard with Freud because really what he does is pretty awful. Yeah. Um, and I was never planning to um, write his novel, and I remember in Finnegan I had to cheat in a way. I needed a lot of information given, and I didn't want to go into it because if I had to, I would have had to write three chapters. So I thought, I'm going to use an unreliable narrator, and I gave it to Freud, and it just changed. I mean, I just thought I could not let go of this character, and I just had to think to myself, he was a child brought up by savage people, and um, I had to make sure that there were never any excuses. He never forgets what he tried to do in any of the books. He actually sees himself as one of the people or the type of person who is the villain in anyone's life. So, you know, that was difficult. But yes, I do. I, I have to believe that. Um, I have to believe that people can change. And I've seen that people change in a way. But I still feel as if I'm writing a romanticised view of the world. I suppose with regards to Tell the Truth, I'm presuming we're talking about Charlie. I was actually more thinking about fish. Fish, yeah. yeah. Um, I just think that with it's like everything. It's like um, even with writing the novel and why I said before that it's the rewrites and the rewrites. It's like getting to know someone and who you knew in that first month and who you know two years down the track. You have then found out all the dimensions to them. And I think that so many times we judge someone on face value and I've done that I've done that quite a few times I did it with the boys I taught that you know uh, before I started teaching boys were if you saw a group of boys you, you just you cross the road you do not walk through them and one thing that I learned from teaching is boys who you really were critical of to begin with could be one little thing that they did and the most important thing was they showed empathy for someone and for me, I just thought, I, I just have to see them in a different light now. So sometimes I'm reluctant, but I just felt with this novel, um, it happens in the sense of you see someone through someone's point of view in that chapter and you're constantly changing your mind. And I, I say this often, I did not take sides. I, I was not there to take sides and I could see the fault of everyone involved. Um, and that's, that's, I suppose, in that world of what you're asking. And, and the boys in Saving Francesca that we meet here are, are very different yes. people in many ways, aren't they? And the boys in Saving Francesca, Tom Mackey is um, one especially, that when I first started writing Tom Mackey, he was always just going to be this awful, immature, idiot, but in a way, destructive. Like, um, and because he was based on, I was a new coordinator and he was based on these boys who were that, and as I said, they were the ones that showed empathy at one stage, and they ended up, I still know them, I still know them, they're, they're men in their 30s, and I still remember just what they revealed in their empathy, 
um, and Tom couldn't beat the villain anymore and he ends up getting his own book, you know. So it's just things like that, but you have to really think carefully about your decisions because you don't want to be romanticising someone, you know, with negative traits, especially people who have done awful things. And, you know, sometimes it gets on my nerves, I say this often, that um, men, male characters get forgiven a lot more, I feel, in my work than female characters do. And I think that that's about society and we expect women, like say Mark or even Georgie Finch, um, to have it together. And if a woman doesn't have it together at a particular age, well, oh my God, the criticism is amazing. Whereas I feel as if men in the, my novels have done a lot worse and they don't get criticism. It's like, oh, but that's guys and, you know. So I, I'm kind of challenging that as well. Thank you so much for your work. Um, as someone who wasn't born in Australia, Joseph's grown me so much. But actually, my story, uh, my question is about Jellicoe. I really love Jellicoe. I feel like it's so different to your other novels. Um, I know they have a cameo in The Piper's Sun, but are you going to revisit those friends at all? Um, no and yes. Um, <laughs> I always, um, I know people always want to know about the film and it's film in this country is heartbreaking, um, but we haven't given up on it. And if we, Francesca and Jellico are with the same production company, um, and we always think that Francesca will happen first because we can do it for $3 million. Um, and if Francesca works, then Jellico will. In saying that, we've always had a, um, it's not a sequel because it's not about those characters, but it's um, the series that we've, pretty much done a Bible for the first um, episode is about Jessa McKenzie five years down the track. And it's, I have to say, it's yet another intriguing story. Um, so that's probably where I would revisit them. Um, but it's always hard because I feel as if I finished Taylor's story, you know, in a way. So it's about kind of exploring the others. And um, and I do love a, a Jellicoe fan because in this country especially like when it first came out oh my goodness it was so it was really criticized it was really an awful thing because i just thought wow i did something different and it, it wasn't francesca and it wasn't alabrondi for people they did want me to write about the italian girl in the suburbs and really it wasn't until a few things happened one was that it won an award in the us um who didn't have to compare it with alabrondi but i remember in the um early days of jellicoe reading these awful reviews and actually I remember going to a bookstore in um, Melbourne and um, I was told to my face, someone said, I, I didn't like it, I just wanted you to do Francesca and um, Alan Brody again. And I thought, can I just say, don't ever tell that. Don't, don't ever be that gentle to a writer. Because <laughs> <laughs> I just remember feeling so deflated. Um, but I was at a school, it's always young people who inspire me. And I was at a school and I was having to talk about Francesca and I was walking out and these girls came up to me and they, um, they, one was holding Francesca and they said, sorry, um, Jennifer, and they said, at lunchtime, we sit around and we just talk about our favourite line from this novel. And I thought, oh my God, we were reading it. Like, and that's how I discovered that there was, it was almost like this little underground movement. Um, and I always called Jellico the thinking girl's novel, like a thinking teenager's novel, because I just think persevere. It's such a tough you know, structure to get through, but I just think, you know, I just didn't want to be feeding, you know, the answers to people. Um, so I don't think I'm finished with them, but I, with that world, but I probably am with Taylor because, of course, in my head, how did Jonah end up 
you know, together. And I don't want to split them up or anything. So let's leave them out there. Um, and I think that if I have to revisit them, I might have to, you know, introduce hassles and whatever. I don't want to do that. How do you find the process of adapting novel into a Um, Probably harder with that novel because I didn't know what I was doing. Whereas now I'm very cruel and I'm probably the cruelest about you know letting go of things. The thing with a novel and an adaptation is you know metaphorically you have to smash it on the ground and you pick up the pieces and then you have to totally restructure it. Um, the hard thing about Ella Grundy was um, there were a lot of characters and, um, you know, people who were assessing it, the script, um, you know, the funding bodies, all of them, they haven't read the novel. And that's a good thing because you don't want someone to read the script with the novel in their head. Um, but they'd say, too many girls, like too many girls in this school, we don't know who to concentrate on, get rid of some of them. So. Um, and one of the strangest things, and it seems strange now, is um, makes a bit of sense. But I was told, take out John Barton's, um, take out John Barton, because his um, death. I'm giving away something, a book that I wrote 27 years ago. <laughs> Too bad. So, um, I'm not giving away anything with this, but 27 years if you haven't read it, as I said. Um, so with his death. They wanted to take that out because they felt that it dominated the end of the story, and they said, "We don't want you don't want people walking out of a movie theater depressed." And uh, because his death happens at the end of the, the novel, and it's a, it's always about fighting for things, and I just thought if I restructured it and his death happens halfway through the story and it's the catalyst for her journey, then we can keep him. So. I learned so much through that process that when I had to um, write, say, Jellico and Francesca, um, you know, the first thing you have to do is write a treatment. I hate writing treatments. I hate them. It's like writing a lesson plan, sorry, um, an essay plan, and, but it's the best thing to do. And I found that I didn't do that with Alibrandi, whereas I did with the others. And that, to me, gives you an idea of what the, the, the film's about, not what the novel's about. And, you know, with Francesca, um, you know, kept on going back and forward. And if anyone read the first draft of the script, they'd say, you know, is it about what goes on at home with the depression? Is it about Will and her? Is it about all these different things? So we had to sit down one day and work out what is the main through line of this script. And we made the decision, we had this meeting on the day that Trump was elected, mm-hmm. and we all just said gender. It's about girls in a boys' world. And that means that that script is about all those other things, but the main thing is about being girls in a boys' world. So it's it's about a lot of collaboration, um, and it's once again rewrite after rewrite after rewrite after rewrite until you get it right. It feels sacrilegious to ask, but now I feel like I need to. So having done the screenplay for that book we can't talk about and moving John Barton, did you ever think if you could have the time again, you would change the novel and you would have his death happening at a different time? Um, I wouldn't put his death in there. So um, unfortunately in my life, um, I, it's just I've experienced close people to me, um, you know, going through what um, John did and I don't think I could write about it now. Back then, I remember one girl did, who I went to school with. Um, but since then, like at least three or four people I know have, and I don't think I could have gone into it 
Um, so I, I think I wouldn't have written about it, which is, is interesting when you think about it. In the same way as um, the Piper Sun, um, you know, it was, and in the, with the Piper Sun, a friend of mine's son took his life. And if I hadn't, if that had happened while I was writing the Piper Sun, I wouldn't have written it. Not for anything, because it's not in the novel, but death is in the novel, the death of a young person. Um, so thankfully, you know, it sounds terrible, but, you know, it, it didn't make me stop writing it. And same with um, Tell the Truth, Shame the Devil. The Paris attacks hadn't happened. Um, I, you know, in a, in a very morbid way about predicting, you know, that things are going to happen with music, but um, I wrote that novel thinking, how safe is that area, you know, between the English Channel and wrote this novel and it was getting edited and um, it was the first time I had been simultaneously edited and my editor in New York was supposed to be sending me um, you know, notes that night and she said, I, I can't because my husband's, we're trying to contact everyone we know in Paris and my husband's brother works at the stadium in Paris and... I remember that night thinking, I cannot continue with this book. I'm writing fiction and over there this is really happening. And I remember she contacted me later. We had these amazing connections with that particular editor. In that novel, um, it's it's about French Algerians. She was married to a French, she's married to a French Algerian. She's Jewish married to a um, Muslim. And I just loved that. You know, there were so many different things. But I remember she contacted me later and she said, see, this is why that book's important. And and that's the only thing that, you know, made me kind of write it again. Um, so, you know, I always think of what what if I had to write things again, would I go down that path? No, for any of those books, and they wouldn't have been written. So sometimes things are just meant to um, be written at that time. Is that about the impact on you or also the impact on those close to you? you you've, very conscious perhaps of it. A combination, but I also, it, I just felt that I couldn't have gone there. In the same way as I said that I found it hard going there with the depression. Because, um, I mean, I've always been open about this, but my mother, when I was a child, younger than Francesca, she did, um, and she's very, my mother's still on the go. She's in her late 70s, and I don't say that nothing stops this woman. Um, and, you know, when someone like that suffers depression, and the whole family is defined by her. I remember distinctly, and I remember um, being sent to live with my aunt, um, and so did my sister. And um, that's why I felt that I knew that area, but you just sometimes think I can't go closer, closer, because I'm frightened about what it's going to, you know, I suppose, tip off in me. Um, and I'm, I flirt with depression, so I'm always frightened about how close I can get there and all of those things, you know, could set something off. So um, I always think that things are meant to be at particular times and I'm glad I don't have to go back. I, I would change a lot of things. I would change the writing. I know people love that novel, but oh my goodness. That's all I can say. I just, um, I, I cringe at some of the lines. And it was a reflection of how I felt about the world. I sound like, dirty, you know, Alice in Wonderland sometimes, you know. Um, but I'm, so I'm glad that I can't go back and change it because I don't want to go back to change the way I saw the world back then. So I think we're very glad. As yeah. Well. So what is that? What's, what's that? 
<laughs> the first book that we can't talk about. Looking for Alabrandi. I can't say it. Yeah, yes. Um, did I give you something? Did I have that? Did I get something away that happened? Yes. It's just, I have watched the movie. Yes. And um, it is a very touching movie. It, it is. And I haven't read the book, and the way you talked about it, I'm surprised. I think that with the book, it ends that way, and I think it just leaves people with. Um, I don't think it leaves people depressed because the last chapter is very inspirational. Um, and that's the part that I love that I just think, oh my goodness, were you on a trip when you were writing? <laughs> you know, I think there's a line of, you know, an Irish man saying, you know, and I just thought, oh my goodness, don't let But it's how I felt about the world back then. I was just so, uh, and I kind of still do. I, I'm a, um, an incredibly pessimistic person who's determined to be optimistic um, in the same way as I'm a very high functioning, anxious person. So. I just fight it all the time because I just I don't ever want to present false hope, but there has to be hope. I, I will never write without hope, you know. Um, and I can understand sometimes why structurally things have to be changed for a movie audience anyway. So I feel like for another question to it, I was going to say, if you're someone who's always fighting those internal demons, so a lot of your characters often have voices in their heads yes. and their parents talking to them and grandparents talking to them. Is that, is that an experience you have yourself? It is, it is. And, um, and I, what a therapeutic thing I found writing to be. I think that that's been my therapy, um, you know, over time. Because, uh, you know, once when I was a child, it was reading. That was that therapy and now it's writing. And um, I, you know, I, in a way, my audience is me. And it's just such a wonderful, um, not a shock, but so wonderful to have this out in the world and have people reacting to it the way I'd love for it to be, you know. Um, and I just think, gosh, there's a lot of people who are dealing with the same stuff as I am. Um, but, yeah, it's just life in general and um, I never want to project that things are easy, I suppose, but I don't also want to project that things are bleak because I don't think we can live that way. I don't, I don't want to raise my child with that feeling. So I think there was one more. One, one more. So, yeah, last one. So, so when you're writing a book like this that is, I suppose, a trilogy, the third, do you reread the earlier books in order to rewrite it and are they the same as you remember when you wrote them or do they feel unfamiliar? Um, yes, I do have to. Probably not for a while now because uh, first draft I would have written about two years ago. Um, my amazing editor... Um, and this is an interesting thing. This is an adult novel and it belongs to the adult department of um, Penguin Random House. Plus three dollars. Uh, <laughs> it's much more expensive than on YA. Um, but um, she, you know, people say to me, you know, because you're so well known now and you wrote Alabrandi and the whole thing, you know, do you get to fly business class more than you do? Although I'm staying at a fantastic hotel. Um, <laughs> But what I do get to do is say, you know, I really, really wanted Amy to edit this book. And Amy belongs to the children's department, the YA department. And I wanted her to edit this book because she edited The Piper's Son. And my publisher in the children's department, although she's not the publisher of this book, but it was her decision as well for Amy to be able to do it because she published Francesca. And so to have people involved who know these characters as much as I do. So, you know, even until the last minute, she was rereading the novels to make sure, um, you know, that there wasn't something that didn't make sense. And the hard thing with these characters 
is at one stage they're 17, next stage they're 21, and now they're 25. They have to be different, but there has to be aspects of them that, that are the same. You don't change completely. And so I had to make sure that people saw that difference in their lives, but they still recognised, you know, especially Francesca, she is sort of a basket case in saving Francesca. Now, she's the leader of the pack. She's the mother hen of everyone else in the other books. She's also not Francesca anymore. She's Frankie because they've got to know her um, in the same way as Thomas is, you know, Tom and the whole thing. But I just think that I had to make sure that you don't forget what Francesca went through in Saving Francesca. There are traces of that in the Piper's son and there are certainly traces. She refers to something in this. And that's me. You don't forget certain things in your life, and um, but you use it as a writer. You don't just throw it in. You use it. And one of the characters in Piper's son that I thought I uh, had in there just for the sake of it was Will Trumbull, as in Francesca's um, love interest. But I couldn't just have him in because he belonged to Saving Francesca. He had to work for Tom. So I never allow a character to just be in to make you happy. He, he, has to, he or she has to work, you know, for their place. So, yes, I did have to go back and make sure. And sometimes I feel as if I write something in this book I've written that line before. That's, that's really, I mean, nine books, you, you kind of have sentiments that are repeated. Um, and one in particular, On the Jellico Road um, has a line about seeds that, you know, take. And so has, I think, Freud the Exiles with regards to Beatrice. And I, I look at those and I think they're really the same lines. But um, I'm hoping that I'm the only one that's really kind of going, oh, my God. <laughs> um, yet another thing for the continuity nerd to be looking at. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. I feel like we could all be here all night um, in a good way. That's been such a wonderful conversation. And I think it's really sort of talked a lot about the power of books as well, to talk about, you know, the big issues. And it also sort of circles back to a comment that you made, Melina, which was that, you know, you're writing about community and families and they're the small things, but I think they're the things that sustain us to do the big things. Mm. So Definitely. thank you for the um, But please join me in thanking Sean and Well, I hope you enjoyed that. I'm sure you'll agree. Melina is an incredible Australian, so warm and generous and what an amazing writer. Talked about her, her many books there. She mentioned she's written nine before The Place in Dalhousie. Um, check out her WordPress site, Melina Marchetta, uh, and you can see all her her books. But I can't recommend the latest one, The Place in Dalhousie, enough, released by Penguin Australia, available all over Australia now and just uh, a excellent exploration of community and home in modern Australia. I'll be back shortly with another traditional Capitans podcast bringing to life a tale inspired by you set in Canberra. But if you can't wait that long, volume two, volume two of the published short stories is available in bookstores around Canberra, including Paper Chain, Harry Hartog, National Institutions, Curatorium, or you can jump online at www.capitalyarns.com.au and you can order a copy there. 
Or if you like, give me three items for me to weave into a tail setting camera for you too. Look forward to speaking to you soon. Bye now.